Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 10. The title of the message is Crucified with Christ. Not too long ago, we, uh, we read some of these verses that we're going to read early on here. And a lot of times we'll, we'll overlap different texts that we use. And you know, I saw some stuff further down here that excited me. So I thought I would do something on this uh, topic of Crucified with Christ. We're going to read verses 10 through 15. And you are complete in him, speaking of Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom, in Christ, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. We know that the word of God, and we bring this up a lot, tells us that the believer only glories in the cross of Christ. Galatians 6, 14 through 16. And that glorying in the cross of Christ is the only rule that is for the new creation or the new creature, as it is mentioned in that text. And this is the clearest evidence. Glorying in the cross of Christ alone is the clearest evidence that a person has been born of God. And the believer, he'll confess that in such a way that it'll be evidence that his confidence is in the object of their faith, as well as their assurance, and it's Christ and him crucified. That is where the believer is to look to for a healthy state of mind, peace of mind, and assurance. That object of faith, Christ and him crucified, does not change. And if we are to look inside for assurance, the changeable, subjective, some would say sarcastically, navel gazing, you know, belly button gazing, which changes, feelings come and feelings go, you know, we've got all these emotions and we're in different circumstances and we're, we're pulled and tugged in different circumstances and sometimes we don't feel like we're a super Christian, right? But when we look to Christ, the personal work of Christ, the cross of Christ, the, him and him crucified, that does not change. That is fixed. It's finished. It's complete. Therefore, the spiritual diet that we crave as believers, or at least should crave, is just that. Christ and him crucified. Remember the church at Corinth, with all their problems, Paul came in there and he said, I got something I'm determined to do. Only preach Christ and him crucified. For all these problems, all these moral problems, all these spiritual problems, Christ and him crucified. Therefore, having said that, and we know that, I think these things are obvious that I've said so far, 
those that are in a leadership position, whether it be teachers, preachers, or whatever, that are involved in the teaching, the preaching in the church of God's flock, their sheep, the priority and focus at every turn, for every reason, in any circumstance, is Christ and Him crucified. That is the platform. That is the foundation. If you teach, I don't care what you're teaching about. If you're teaching about marriage, or if you teach, it doesn't matter. You use the gospel as the platform, the filter, and the funnel to run all doctrinal truths through. So that is the foundation. The gospel of Christ itself is the foundation for teaching even exhortations and commands of how we live the Christian life. And I hope I was a good example the last two weeks. We did a two-part series on how to live the Christian life. I spent a lot of time talking about that foundation. And um, that does a lot of things for living the Christian life in reference to motive and incentive and doing it under the dominion of grace. So there is a, a clear, prioritized, biblical, I'm going to use a word here that some of you may have forgotten what it is, a biblical hermeneutic, that means scriptural interpretation. There is a rule for, there are all kind of rules for scriptural interpretation, all kind of rules. What are, what are some of them? Context, right? That's just one. Well, there is one that should be biblically logical to all of us. When you bring the whole Bible in its context, and having just said what I said about the foundation of the gospel, the gospel itself becomes a theological hermeneutic or a theological tool to interpret everything in the scripture. Once we know about this truth of the gospel, who Christ is and what he has done to save his people, then everything that we scripturally interpret in the Bible better not contradict that. If it seems to contradict that, then it's wrong. The gospel stays right. I hear some you know, professors and theologians say, well, you can't do that. You, know, you have to ditch that aside and concentrate more on the original language or, or some other means of hermeneutics or scriptural interpretation. I understand we have to look at language, but language is determined in the context of where it's written. And we know that certain words that are the same Greek words or Hebrew words in different places are interpreted different ways in each context. So the, the firmest foundation is not just context, but is that gospel foundation, that filter that everything must run through and be consistent with as we teach everything in the scripture. I think that's part of what Paul meant when he said, I'm determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think just innately that's what that, that's what that means. Now we know this for several reasons, primarily because we know that the gospel itself is a promise. The gospel is a promise of salvation conditioned on Christ alone. That's, that's the idea of the covenant. That salvation is conditioned on Christ alone. It's not conditional. The old covenant was conditional. The promise of salvation in Christ under the new covenant in the dominion of grace. Salvation conditioned on Christ alone. That's not hard to forget. But depending on our spiritual diet, if we're not healthy, depending on who our influences are, from the outside, 
we might be drawn away. We, we read several examples in the New Testament of the writers of the New Testament having to warn people, hey, who's been talking to you about this? You've been drawn away from what I read Paul, you know, especially in Galatians 1. You're so soon removed from this gospel that you originally believed. What's going on? And he would warn people about these outsiders. Talked also about in, uh, in Corinthians the other day how that he said, I, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because of these these outside twerps that are coming in and twisting the scripture. So warning after warning after warning to stay focused on the foundation and everything runs through that. How many have ever seen or read about throughout history of people seemingly been on that foundation and they move off of it? I read all the time on the internet about people that are falling off and are starting to teach different, making salvation conditional, whether it be at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end. Deadly. Deadly. That's not good for anything or anybody in any part of salvation. And if it is blatant enough that it's just a damnable message, as Paul and others warn but most of the times it's subtle and hopefully and we know through the providence and grace of God God's people are protected and they either don't hear it or they see it identify it and get away from it so all the means in salvation are by grace everything that is done in salvation is done the, the phrase we use, the theological phrase, is monergistically. That means God alone energizes it. It comes from God. This is just a catchphrase for sovereign grace. God is the one that runs it all. Salvation is of the Lord, in other words, from start to finish. And when you boil it down, what can we say? We are complete in him. That's our first verse there. Let's look at it. Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. And this is talking about Christ. We know that the work of Christ is sufficient for all that we need. If we're completed him, it means the work that he has done is all sufficient and all complete for us in order for us to be complete in him. If you think of an incomplete work, it's going to result in people that are associated with him that are incomplete, right? This is logical. We know that by God, Christ is made unto us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We're complete. We've even seen the preeminence of Christ set forth in even the Trinitarian salvation, where the Father and the Holy Spirit is involved, the Father has set him forth in preeminence. We know that in all things he has preeminence. We got it on the wall back there. Especially salvation. He has the whole weight of salvation, the whole government of salvation on his shoulder. And he's been pushed out front, set forth, as the scripture says, in preeminence. We know that in election, for example, and we're going to do a series very, very soon, I promise, on election, 
And what we're going to cover is this easy point that we see that in, even in elections done by the Father, but the preeminence is on Christ because we are chosen in him for his sake, because of him. In the work of the Spirit, we know the Spirit's office, his task is to, he said he won't testify of himself. He'll testify of Christ. So you go to a ministry that where all they do is talk about the spirit, the spirit this, the spirit that, and their main thing is just everything about the spirit. They don't ever talk about Christ. That's a warped ministry because Christ is the one that has preeminence. And the spirit said, I won't testify myself. I will testify of Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 9, Before we read verse 10, but verse 9 says that. So it's all about him. Some preachers have said, you know, this Bible, this book, this Bible is a him book, right? It's all about him. And I'm not just going to say him and not define who he is or what he did, but we always talk about who he is and what he did. And that's, that's the job here. We know that by him all things consist, chapter 1 of our, or the same book we're looking at, Colossians 1.17. All things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist or are held together. He is the one that runs providence. Hebrews 1.3, all things are upheld by him by the word of his power. So Christ is the creator. Father set him forth to create. He delegated that to him, and Christ is the creator. And he did it through the means of his word, right? He spoke it into existence. So as he creates, he has the divine right authority to deal with his creation. All authority is given unto me, heaven and earth, to give eternal life to as many as you have given me. John 17, 2. So here he is. He has the divine right. He's absolutely sovereign over all things without exception. He created all things for himself. All things created by him and for him. He owns all things. He runs all things through his providence. He has a divine right and authority to do so. He controls the things that maybe are scary to us. Satan, fallen angels, false prophets. All these things that are seemingly in, the, in this world are like negative. He runs all that. He controls all that. And knowing that, that should give us peace of mind. Since we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, we should, we should rehearse that in our minds and train ourselves in our minds that he is even running these negative things that we think are negative. But he's got it all under control. Everything's all on schedule. And that should make our anxiety just go away. He's running it all. And here it talks about principalities and powers. So that could include Satan's fallen angels, uh, false prophets, and bad governments, you know, tyrannical governments, as much as I can't stand them, whether they, be, whether they creep into our country or whether you see them in other countries where, you know, people are just being abused by these tyrants throughout history. We, you know, you can read history and know about it. Persecution of the church, all these things that seem that God is running it. He's purposed it. So he is the head of it all, it says in our text. So the word head there, the, the word refers to seizing or taking hold of being the head authoritatively. He's not just any old head 
small age. We know he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he has seized his divine right to run things. He's not to be questioned, in other words. You read those scriptures about divine sovereignty. You know, none can stop his hand. Things like this. He's declared the end from the beginning. All his purpose, all his counsel shall stand. And who are you to question him? Where were you when he hung the stars? You, the, the whole earth, when considered, compared to God, who everyone in the earth is, they're just like a drop in the bucket to who God is. They're, they're, we, we read a text not too long ago. They are less than nothing when compared to who God is. That word head there is the same Greek word, and you don't have to turn. I'll read this real quick. You'll be familiar with it. He, uh, Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. It talks about when Christ was exalted after he as, was ascended up, and he was placed somewhere. And we look at this text all the time. That's why I say that uh, those who have been here for a while probably had this memorized. Verse 21 says, where did he go? Where was he put? Far above, notice what? Where? All principality and power. He's the head of all principality and power. He's, he went above in reference to exaltation to them. All principality, power, and might, and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. All the ages, in other words. We looked at that word world not too long ago, and it meant age, right? So this is like now and forever, in other words. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head, there's the word, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So there's just another witness there of he's the head. He runs it all. He created it all. He has the right. And if you're his, then all things work together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. So we can have confidence in that's going to take place because he's the head. Now, looking at this negative aspect of the things that we don't like and that are scary, whether it be the purpose of Satan in the world, the purpose of false prophets in the world. Think about it. I understand the Satan thing, but sometimes people have a hard time getting this in their head where we're to defend the faith. We know God is in absolute control. We, in Jude, for example, it talks about false prophets that crop, crept in unawares that were foreordained before the world began. Foreordained by who? God. So he deals out his truth, his people believe his truth, and there is always error coming in, challenging that truth. And Satan and his angels and false prophets are working together for this battle of the mind, this war that we are with in the world. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to who the world is crucified to that idea and we are to the world. So all these false prophets and these lies coming against the truth are ordained by God. And people have a hard time putting that puzzle together in their mind. They could get fatalistic and say, well, we're not called to call out the lie. We're only called to 
preach the truth. <laughs> Just a cursory reading of the scriptures will tell you otherwise. We're to defend the faith. We're to contend for the faith. It talks about gospel defense there in uh, Philippians. So there's a purpose for false prophets. We know, what else does it say? There must needs be heresy among you, so that those that are approved may be made manifest. So God always used contrasts, right? I think this is one of the biggest things that, for the reasons, I, I think logically scripture would just overall say this, that the, one of the purposes of false prophets is to, and, and lies is to just continue to make that contrast stark. That clean, that line is drawn, no gray areas. A line is drawn by learning the scriptures and, and that line is more that we learn, the harder that line is drawn and we can compare things. And they're not close. After a while we say, that's not close, that's opposite. And it has to do with false prophets. And the more we're trained, we're to recognize those things. And we get off the bottle, we'll see those things coming a mile away. Verse 11. In whom, speaking of Christ, Colossians 2.11, you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body, the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Well, you know, I don't believe in luck. And um, you read that text, talked about those that are creeping in the churches of Galatia that were bringing up this ritual and, and ceremonial rite of circumcision, the false gospel that said, yeah, Christ is fine, but it's, in order to be all the way righteous, you got to be circumcised. And, you know, some special days you might keep too and some dietary laws and in Paul and circumcision was talked about mainly there and emphasized more and Paul was saying to these knuckleheads that crept in with their false gospel they called them false brethren he told them he said you know if you think circumcision will do the trick just go ahead and cut the whole thing off that's what he's mean that's what he means there emasculate Cut it all the way off. You'd be even more righteous and more holy. So he was being sarcastic there, but he's proving a point. He was saying it doesn't help any. But I wish you guys were cut off. Now, bring that idea into the, the idea of circumcision. It has to do, we, we know, I don't want to get graphic here, but it has to do with cutting away of flesh of the foreskin, and it is discarded. It is cast off. Now, this is brought up a few different ways in Scripture. But here in this context, it is talking about the death of Christ. Now, if you want to turn, keep your place. So if you want to turn to Isaiah, here's, a, here's an example. Isaiah 53, probably the most popular chapter, maybe, in the Old Testament. One of the, I think one of the clearest gospel chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. In verse 8, I want you to see an uh, idea here. Speaking of Christ... He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. This meant he died. He was cut off from life. 
he had to die, right? That was the purpose in him coming. He had to, the wages of sin is death. He had to die as a sacrifice for the transgression of the scripture here says, of my people was he stricken. So he was cut off out of the land of the living. So Christ was cut off and cast away, using that circumcision picture, out of the land of the living for his people. And when I say for, and I emphasize that a little bit louder, it's actually capitalized in my notes. That means substitution. In the place of. That's what that text said in Isaiah. For the transgression of my people. The basic idea of substitution is you come out, he goes in. There's no mixing. There's no you saying, uh, you need help. You know what I'm saying? No. Complete substitution. He did it. Salvation is of the Lord. So he was cut off. He died. So that we didn't have to experience that death in reference to what it took to save us. Forget about physical death. I'm not even talking about this. is of, of no importance at all in reference to us. Physical death took place because of the, the, the condemnation that Christ took on uh, being made the curse. And he took on that condemnation. We're going to get into that a little bit here in a second. But he was not just our substitution, but our representative. Some theologians call this, um, he was our federal head and representative. And they say that in a, in a legal representative fashion. So just like Adam represented the whole world, in the beginning, we know this by reading Romans, the commentaries in Romans 5 about it, and in Corinthians also it says. But when Adam ate of the fruit, legally, representatively, that meant when he ate, we ate because he represented us. That's what the scripture says in Romans 5. You can't get around it. It's clear as a bell. What I'm more excited about is the fixing of that and Christ, what he did. And that's just what our text is about today. And we'll get more into that. So this, this baptism that it's talking about eventually in our text, we're going to go to another text that talks about baptism that for whatever reason, and I used to believe it, they want to talk about water. This is talking about the death of Christ. This baptism, which actually saves, is not water baptism. It's not even baptism of the Holy Spirit even though we partake of that we love that, we need that this is talking about Christ it's baptism that we partake in is the baptism into the death of Christ being placed into the circumcision of Christ in other words, his death back in our text uh, it starts to get into this verse 12 buried with him with Christ, talking about talking about God's people buried with him in baptism. So this is talking about God the Father baptizing his people in Christ, in union with Christ, as Christ is their representative. We're going to look at some other texts that are going to make mean much more, make more sense, I should say. But the scripture in one of these texts we're going to look at talks about the old man. Scripture contrasts the new man and the old man. 
Well, the old man, we're going to see, is the one that is killed here. Our old man, I want to say, is that part of us that had connection with Adam. We were in Adam, and we had Adam's sin in our account and our own sin in our account. That's the old man. That's got to die. That's got to be killed and cast off. So, as Christ was the head, the federal head and representative and substitute of his people, God placed his people in union with Christ, and Christ received no mercy. He was immersed, plunged into, without mercy, baptized into the wrath of God. Father, it would be possible let this cut pass before me now. No, you have to be baptized in my wrath completely to be able to satisfy law and justice. So there was this union between God's people and Christ as he represented them in his death. Now, some, some things should come to mind maybe that we've been looking at a lot lately. For he who knew no sin was made to be sin just like this right here that we might be made the righteousness of God in him if he was made to be sin he was made to be our old man if we're sin the old man in Adam and the curse he's made all he, he's connected to and, and made who we are the guilt of it and he puts it away takes on the wrath of God he's baptized in the wrath of God until it's satisfied look at the second part of that verse verse 12 wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead now we know that the father raised Christ because the sacrifice of Christ was pleasing and acceptable to God it was perfect, in other words, right? Christ met all the conditions, all the demands, because there were both demands and conditions in the covenant. Christ met them all. He said, it's finished. The Father accepted it. And the, the witness of that was his resurrection. Not just that, what we read earlier. The highest spot he can get, Right? So because of that, that same power that was used by God, because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, raised Christ up and even exalted him to the highest position we read in Ephesians 1. We're going to see a text that, that matches that also. I really didn't notice before dealing with that, which the one we just read. So positionally and legally, let me go back in case I forget. We always talk about that. I said here, where it talks about the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that God works in the believer to cause them to believe. Now, if that's, the, I think that might be the biggest anti-free will verse in the Bible. And this is what this uh, second part of this verse 12 is telling us, that the Father was involved powerfully in doing this, and we were brought in in this union with him, and it's going to result in what we always talk about here, this... Believing the truth. 
So positionally or legally, believers are in Christ, and he is in us. We, we see in John 17, that's probably the most, the clearest of that that I've seen. It talks about he and us, and us and him, this, that, and the other, and there's this fellowship and union, even with the Trinity, and then he's involved there. We've seen that before. So my righteousness now, any believer, their righteousness is enthroned in the highest spot. He's in heaven, exalted. That's my righteousness. The Lord our righteousness is his name. And God the Father, as I'm hooked up with him, as I went through legally because he made it happen, baptized in the wrath, resurrected because of the perfect acceptance of the perfect sacrifice, raised up, God okayed it through the resurrection and his exaltation. I am seated with him legally. That's where my righteousness is. That's secure. It's a high spot. And if you just think practically or logically, that means nobody can really get to him to mess that up as if you could mess it up physically. You know what I mean? He's all-powerful. It's not like the, the devil and his angels can do anything to what he's got going on there, right? Some serious security going on there. And the father, what does it say? Talk, uh, I think it's first John, toward the back there. As Christ is, so are we in this world. The father looks at us and he says, oh, one of my adopted sons with Christ's righteousness on you. He looks at us just like he looks at Christ. Accepted, we are accepted in the beloved, as it says in um, Ephesians 1 6. So, the Father, in reference to that uniting, even now it says, I can't remember, is it Ezekiel or, or Jeremiah or something? It talks about how that He's the Lord our righteousness, and then those that are married to Him, united, wed to Him now, His people are called by that self same name because they took on His name. The church is called now the Lord our righteousness. So doesn't it make sense that in this world, even now, when the Father looks at us, he, that's what he sees. We've got that garment on, that righteousness of Christ. We read this verse a lot. The body, This is uh, Romans 8, uh, 10. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ established that righteousness that he came to to merit, to bring in. It says in Daniel, he brought in an everlasting righteousness. And it talks about establishing righteousness in Romans. And we know that that's imputed to the account of God's people. And upon that basis, upon that ground, the Spirit is able to, based on that ground, do his work in the believer. Christ founded and merited all these things, these gifts, by dying for the believer, and the Spirit then is enabled to come in and work in the believer. So the, the, the work of the Spirit is the fruit of the accomplished work of Christ. Now, regeneration and conversion, which is the Spirit's work in us, it's because of Christ establishing that perfect righteousness for his people in the place of Right as he represented them. Go to Galatians chapter two. I want us to see a couple of things here. Some similar language, and this may help things make more sense. 
talking about some of these legal things and this idea about representation. Look toward the end there, Galatians 2, verse 19. It says, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. So, the law, the use of the law in the accomplishment of redemption and salvation is vital. God is a God of justice and holiness and righteousness. And when he declares someone justified, we know because he's faithful to his own character, he has to justify people in a just and holy and righteous way. He's not unfaithful to himself. He doesn't cheat, right? He doesn't do this in a fake way. It must measure up to his perfect law and justice. So through the law, Christ being born under the law, being born of a woman under the law, he came and he kept the law. And every jot and tittle, he said, it's, it's not going to pass away. I'm going to take care of this. He fulfilled the law. And as he died on the cross, he paid the penalty of the law that was due his people as a substitute and representative. And he died as what the scripture uses the word propitiation, which just simply means he satisfied the demands of God's law and justice. That wrath, he exorbed that wrath, paid for that sin, and he said it's finished. What? No more wrath. Nothing coming the way of the people that he died for. He took care of all the penalty once and for all time for those people that he died for. So through the law, I died to the law. Paul says, you know, law satisfied. I was made to see, finally, when God woke me up, that I can't keep that law. And he even wrote in Romans, the purpose of the law to show we can't keep it is to condemn us. He wrote in Galatians chapter 3 that it, that law is a curse because you can't continually keep it. Because you've got to continually keep it all the time for it not to be a curse. But when we're born into the world, we're already born into the curse. And he's made a curse for us to take that all away. So we see we can't keep it. And then the gospel teaches that Christ took it and he satisfied it. And now we know the latter part. Well, we can't keep it. Therefore, we, in our minds, by faith and through repentance, we kind of say, Christ, you deal with the law, which we know we already did, right? But that's the idea. In reference to this law in recommending myself to God in, in anything, whether it be sanctification or justification, you know, <laughs> commitment. What I tell you what's important about commitment. When you commit that to him, not that say, okay, I'm committing myself. I'm not going to sin anymore. Some kind of precondition for repentance. It's ridiculous. What it means is you're putting all your eggs in one basket. It's Christ alone. That's all. There's, there's no other hope. That's it right there. And you don't move from that idea. That's 100% grace, sovereign grace, no conditions, no works. And you say, take care of this for me. 
So you're dead, as it says uh, in Romans 7, you're dead to the law so that you may be married to another, which is Christ. And he is the end of the law for righteousness. And then it goes on to say that I might live to God. Now, under the dominion of grace, and we've talked the last two weeks on this, how we're to obey God, and we do it because the just shall live by faith. We do it by faith, not by law. Not by false motives of fear of punishment or promise of a reward. We're not mercenaries. Verse 20, Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, not literally, right? We know not literally. This is talking about what we were talking about in Colossians. And we're going to go to, in Romans and look at it next. This is this union that the Father placed his people in Christ. And God killed the old man in Christ. It's by representation. Legal union with the old man. He says, and I live, yet no longer I but Christ lives in me. So now I am in, identified in Christ, not me. Right? Do you see the change? Used to, I, my problem was I identified with Adam or me and I was under the curse. But now this is taken care of. I'm ditching me. My new identity is in Christ. I've given me up. So this is our new identity in the world after we are regenerated. We are now only and always accepted in the beloved. I've said it many times, many occasions, in many different ways. We're chosen not because of us. We're chosen because of Christ. We are not loved because of us. It is not conditional on us. It's conditioned on Christ. The love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39. In the life that I live, latter part of verse 20, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. There it is. Toward the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me or on my behalf. Substitution. All right. Let's go over to Romans. Romans 6. I gotta speed this up. I mean, I got a lot left, so I might stop real, real soon. But I want to read a couple of these things and make a couple comments. Romans 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that many of us, as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Stressing baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. What did we just read? I have been crucified with Christ. Paul saying, past tense. This is saying the exact same thing here. We're buried with him by baptism into death. So that, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we shall also walk in newness of life. Here again is the old man is cut off and cast out. The old man is God's enemy, but he's dead now. He's killed. Let me read a couple of verses for you. 
you can jot them down or turn to them if you want. These are just one-liners. Romans 5.18. I'm going to show how sometimes the word life is used in reference to justification and not just regeneration. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, in the self-same way, in other words, under representatives, right? Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Justification of life. Now, this all men, of course, we know. We know all men aren't justified, right? That's a no-brainer. It's talking about those that are justified. Here's another one. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Everybody knows this one, I think. Therefore, if any man be where? In Christ. He is a new creature. Notice this. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is talking about this new state of justification. Condemnation has passed away. That old thing, that, that old man's identity is curse and condemnation and guilt. What does that remind us of? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are what? In Christ Jesus, right? That's changed. It's passed away. It can never come back. Now, think about our Christian life, our experience in our Christian life. I mean, it's got ups and downs. It changes. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about our permanent state change. It's old. It's done. It's gone. It's been killed. And God successfully killed it in Christ when he placed all God's sheep, their old man, their old person, in connection with Adam and their own sins, put him in Christ, it's passed away. What's new? Our state, because of Christ. He is the Lord, our righteousness. We identify only with him now. We're accepted only in him. We have a righteousness now that is on our account that cannot be removed. And we are also in the state to where sin cannot ever be charged to our account. So those things are unchangeable. Let's look at another verse there. Uh, let's go on in verse 5, Romans 6, 5. Almost done. For or because if we have been joined together, there's that union, been joined together because of our representative, Christ, in the likeness of his death, because it wasn't physical for us, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be destroyed, that from now on we should not serve sin. And we know that sin and death has no more dominion over us. It, it's a couple of verses down. I don't think we're going to get to it. That's what it says a few verses down. Look at one more verse, verse 7. 
For he who died has been justified from sin. Our old man's crucified in Christ, with Christ. It's done. Body sin is destroyed. And now we don't serve sin. We're not under dominion of sin or death. And since we've died in that sense, the old man has died. We're justified from sin. We're, some versions say, freed. The word's justified. It's the same idea that justification is used in all the other texts that we look at for the doctrine of justification. I'm going to save the rest of these verses because there's just too much uh, juice in, in the grapes, so to speak. I'll go back next week and I plan to review some. That'll be the last message of the year, I think. And then the, I, th I think it works out that way that the next um, thing we'll have is the fellowship dinner. Any questions or comments? Yeah, the easy ones. <laughs> yeah, there's some some people write some. Okay, yeah. And this is kind of a controversial minority view of this text. There's just a handful of commentators that kind of deal with this in this way. Anybody here from us? Any questions or comments? All right. Anybody want to sing a song? Anybody want to pick one out? <laughs>